You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, this morning, uh, when Alistair came forward to present, a thought crossed my mind, probably crossed yours as well, and uh, should apologize uh, to him that I didn't do anything about that thought. Uh, I was reminded the very first time I spoke at the Keswick Convention, 1979, we all trooped down to the big tent, and a man came up, and he planted a measuring rod right on my chest, which I thought was the most extraordinary thing, until I realized the whole thing was organized in such a way that they would never need to heighten or lower the microphone because they had a series of uh, little steps that they slid in and out so that uh, uh, these were long past the days when the Keswick message was a higher life movement. Everyone was supposed to be the same height. And this one looks as though it was really arranged for Colin or Stephen uh, rather than from Alistair. So um, that needs to be discussed at the deacon's court. It's not a matter for the elders. Microphones are deacons' business, not elders' business. Well, we're turning again in our studies in Paul's letter to the Philippians, to Philippians chapter 2, which I hope we'll finish this evening, and we're reading from verse 19 through to the end of the chapter. Remember the sequence, uh, Paul has uh, made a number of introductory comments about the fellowship he and the Philippians have shared uh, since the events described in uh, Acts chapter 16. And then he's gone on to urge them to live lives of holiness individually and corporately, and especially urge them to live with the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's described in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. He's then urged them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, to live in harmony, to do everything without grumbling or questioning in order that they may be faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus in a disintegrating world. And now he says, uh, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. He is waiting the result of the uh, preliminary trial in Rome. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. But I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. He was the one who had brought the gift to Paul from the church in Philippi. And he has been, therefore, the messenger 
of the Philippian church and has ministered to Paul's need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. About 50 years after Paul sent this letter to the church at Philippi, another letter was sent to the church at Philippi that is still extant. It was written by uh, the bishop, the minister of the church in Smyrna, a man by the name of Polycarp, who himself later on would suffer a martyr's death. And the interesting thing about this letter of Polycarp, which was written around uh, the year 110 AD, Paul writing around 60 AD from Rome, uh, one of the interesting things about this letter is that Polycarp has to write to the Philippians about the same things that Paul wrote to the Philippians about. From one point of view, you might think, did they learn nothing? But from another point of view, what Polycarp's letter really wonderfully underlines is that what Paul is talking about here to the Philippians are realities, challenges, privileges, encouragements that are perennial in the church of Jesus Christ. And this is how we find the Scripture so relevant to us, isn't it? That every generation of Christians lives the Christian life, encounters similar problems, sometimes with a different face, a different color, a different shape. But the basic challenges and the basic gospel resources remain the same. And what therefore strikes us about kind of unusual at this point is that if we're familiar with Paul's letters, we know that in several of them, towards the end, he begins to throw in a few names. People the church to whom he's writing may know. People who may be with him from that church. He sends greetings. He tells them about them. He commends some of them. So, why is it that he's not yet halfway through the letter and he seems to pause to do that now? Some uh, Christian scholars have found this so remarkable that they've believed that Paul actually intended to finish his letter here. Some find it even so remarkable that they think Philippians is two letters that somehow or another have but cobbled together and that Paul ended one at chapter two and then began another at chapter three. But the reason he does this seems to me to be fairly obvious. He has been speaking about the kind of church the Philippians are called to be. He's been speaking about the fruitfulness that results from the unity and harmony and mutual affection 
and esteem that arises in a church where Christ really is Lord. And what he's doing now, without quite saying that this is what he's doing, is introducing brief descriptions of two close colleagues who model the very things that he has been speaking about in these first two chapters. And so, what we have here in the way in which he tells them that uh, he's going to send Timothy, but not yet, and that he is now going to send Epaphroditus, even although possibly they really want to see Timothy, first of all, is holding up before them, as it were, impressing upon their minds by the use of models, working models, to impress upon their minds the lessons, the principles that he's been expounding in the preceding verses. He has encouraged them to have the mind of Christ. And he almost says about these two men, you know both of them. Think about them and you'll see what I'm talking about. Remember, uh, someone I I knew of uh, was uh, working among students and uh, a student brought another student to him who had, who had asked the first student, what does it mean to live the Christian life? And this man said, do you really want to know what it means to live the Christian life? And the student said, yes, I really want to know. He said, do, can you spare two days of your life? He said, yes, I can. He said, well, for, for those two days, I want you just to follow me around. And then at the end, tell me, what the Christian life is. And that's what Paul is essentially doing here. He's saying to the Philippians, if you, if you want to see how you, you really should be functioning as Christians and together as a fellowship, um, follow Timothy around. Follow Epaphroditus around. Actually, both of these men seem to have been what nowadays we would call ministers. And uh, to, to those of us who are ministers, those of us who are elders, in a sense, this is part of the message. What are we for? Among other things, we are, we are for living before the fellowship to which we belong so that members of the church, if they're asked, what's a Christian man like? should be able to point to us and say, he's not perfect, but watch him and you'll see what a Christian man is supposed to be. And of course, we could make similar applications if we asked the question, well, what is a Christian woman supposed to be? And this, of course, how the gospel always works and how it worked in most of our lives. Some of us may have been brought to faith without ever meeting another Christian exclusively by being drawn to read the Scriptures. But most of us, it's the connectedness between the Scriptures and the working models that show us what the Scriptures actually look like, what they mean in flesh and blood terms, that what the Word does in, in that person draws us to to the Word itself, and the Word then helps us to see that 
why that person was like that was because of who Christ is, and we ourselves are drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word and the working models, and they're both here in the first two chapters of Philippians. What he says, uh, first of all, in verses 19 through 24, about Timothy, who is his son in the faith. Notice how he describes him there. And then secondly, Epaphroditus, who is his brother in Christ, a son in the faith and a brother in Christ. Timothy, of course, appears on the scene just before Paul came to Philippi. Uh, whether he was actually converted through Paul's ministry, it's certainly true that he was nurtured in it so closely. Paul, had you remember, taken him to be a kind of substitute for John Mark, who had deserted the previous apostolic missionary journey. And Paul takes him under his wing. And uh, apart from Paul, interestingly enough, apart from Paul and Simon Peter, Timothy is the person in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the letters, whom we come to know best of all because of this close relationship with the Apostle Paul. Now, why does, why does Paul value him? Look at what he says about him. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, verse 20, for I have no one like him. I have no one like him. He isn't saying, notice, because there is no one like him. He is saying, because I have no one like him. And we might be tempted to think in the light of that, if the Apostle Paul could say about you, I've got nobody like you uh, we might be tempted to think, well, this fellow must be something really special. And the great thing about this, it comes out here, it comes out in what he says to Timothy in his two letters to him, it especially comes out in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 10. The great thing about this is, from one point of view, Timothy was nobody special. Timothy was not a type A personality. Timothy did not have all the gifts. Indeed, in some ways, he was the very reverse. You know, sometimes older ministers get uh, asked to recommend younger ministers to congregations, and if you do that, the congregation will send you the packet, and it's clear they're looking for the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, John Wesley, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and maybe a touch of David Robertson, all thrown into one. And uh, I have often, I've never quite had the sense of self to do this, but I've often wanted to write back in a, in a recommendation, when John Doe comes to you, now these are the words Paul uses to the Corinthians about Timothy, the Corinthians, mega church, Corinth, when Timothy comes to you, Make sure you put him at his ease. And I've already written the reply in my mind. 
we are not looking for a senior minister who will put, uh, that we will need to put at his ease. We are looking for a senior minister who will put us at our ease. Do you want a minister that an apostle would say to you, you need to put this man at his ease because unless you do, you'll not get the best out of him. So, Timothy is not your breeze in. The Messiah has arrived. Everything is going to be glorious from now on. And that's what's so encouraging about the fact that Paul is able to say about this man, I've got absolutely nobody like him. He means, of course, no one so like-minded And the reason he uses this expression, I've no one so like-minded, is of course because it's about like-mindedness he's been speaking to the Philippians. Remember how he'd spoken to them about having the mind of Christ, and then described what that mind was, that he humbled himself, that he took on human flesh, that he became the slave, that he washed the disciples' feet. That's the, that's the mind that Christ had. That's the mind that Paul has. And he says, I've no one like-minded because he sees exactly that kind of mindedness in young Timothy. And that's why he's so important to him. It's a real reminder that, the, that what what makes for long-term fruitfulness and usefulness in us is, is not that when we're 23, we're obviously leaders, but that we've got this mind of Christ about which Paul could say, he has the mind of Christ, and he's like-minded with me. So, it's the like-mindedness, but there's something else here. It's the it's the selflessness, the, forget, the self-forgetfulness of Timothy. He says, I've no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all, whoever they are, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. You see this again, it goes along with the first thing, doesn't it? That he's, he's like-minded with Paul because he has the mind of Christ, and therefore there is this self-forgetfulness. And this self-forgetfulness is revealed in the fact that unlike most others, Paul says, he's all taken up with the needs of other people. He, he has been delivered from Uh, self-obsessing, self-absorption. He doesn't use the word I as often as we tend to use the word I. He he is one of those people that when, when they are serving you, you know that you are the center of attention, not them. And this is This is why Paul says, I I have no one as like-minded as him, because he is this this detachment from self. And if if you read between the lines, and maybe not even between the lines, particularly in the opening verses of of 2 Timothy, I think it becomes clear that 
this wasn't natural to Timothy. Indeed, what, what seems to have been more natural to Timothy was to look in, to be, to be somewhat self-absorbed. He was, a, he was an inward-directed individual. And yet, Christ has transformed him. Working with the Apostle Paul now, probably for about 10 years, has, has transformed him. And uh, he's, he is absorbed with the needs of others. And he has learned this wonderful self-forgetfulness, this detachment, where the really important things are not what he is doing, but how you are. Do you know that hymn of Anna Laetitia Waring, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. I ask thee for a thoughtful love through constant watching, wise, to meet the glad with joyful smiles and to wipe the weeping eyes. Sometimes the first is more difficult for some of us than the second, isn't it? Uh, we can be we can be drawn in with a kind of concern because of the emotion of someone else's need, but to, to, be, to be really interested in the interests of others means that you rejoice with those who rejoice because you have what she calls a heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. And that's what he's saying about Timothy, like-minded in Christ, selfless, in life. And you want to say, well, how do, how do you learn this? And here's the interesting thing. You don't learn it by saying, I'm going, I'm going to be less self-centered. I'm really going to start taking an interest in others. It's still a form of self-obsession, isn't it? No, he makes it clear here. He says, now, set Timothy over against others. They, by contrast with Timothy, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So, what's the implication? The implication is what has delivered Timothy from self-obsession and self-interest is not that he has looked in for the resources, but he has being drawn out to Jesus Christ and being taken up with Jesus Christ has driven out of him that self-interest. It's exactly the thing that, that Chalmers speaks about in his great sermon, Colossians 3, isn't it? It's the expulsive power of a new affection. You don't get rid of the old obsessions by focusing on the old obsessions. You need the new dynamism to come in. Um, you know, most of us, probably most years, get into an airplane and fly. And you wonder as the thing rumbles along the, the runway, and sometimes the captain will come on and tell you not only what the fuel weighs, but what the plane weighs, and you think, wish I'd never got onto this thing. How is it that this thing takes off? How does it defy the laws of gravity? Well, I've no idea. But I think it's something to do with employing other laws of physics. It isn't that the law of gravity ceases. 
it's that there is a more powerful law employed. And it's something like this. This law of gravity in the human heart will be with us until we're in heaven. There'll always be this down drag to return us to our focus upon self. But you see, there is a greater power. There is a greater law. And this is what Paul is saying about Timothy, that the, what has really transformed him is that uh, not only is he someone who is selfless, but he's selfless because he is Christ full. He's learned, you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose for them. So the key here is the thing about Timothy in all his fragility is that selflessness is the product of Christ-fullness. And in the midst of all that, Paul comments also on his genuineness. And this is very beautiful. He says, "I I know this is true because Timothy has proved himself with me. Verse 28, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Um, You remember the old adage, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Um, I've sometimes been in, in committees where someone is being brought into the church to play the so-called number two role, and I've always asked this question. Now, I realize I've asked it because, you know, I've been playing the first fiddle myself, and it's easier to ask the question. How well do you play the second fiddle, and for how long can you play it? And this man has been playing the second fiddle to the Apostle Paul for 10 years, and the second fiddle, I think, is usually more difficult to play than the first, isn't it? I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's just a something about, there's a charge about being the leader and having the responsibility. Um, but to be able to say to another Christian, um, have you ever had another Christian say this to you in, in your Christian service? I thank God I have. Say to me, I am here, yes, for Christ, but I'm here for your sake. I'm here to serve you. And you see, that's how you, that's how you grow as a Christian. Granted, there are, there are some who have really grown into leadership in the Christian church, like Jonas Gourd, and they've just like appeared in the night. Um, but they're few and far between. The characteristic, in a sense, you would think Paul was one, and yet Paul wasn't really one, was he? There was Barnabas. And at the beginning, it's always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And so, especially if you're a young person, it's a big, that's a big thing. If you're going to grow, find somebody to serve. You know how, if you're, you know, if you're our generation, if you're not a millennial, if you're a, a pre-millennial baby boomer, I wonder if you've noticed how the language has changed into, into our generation that people speak now about my gifting. 
my gifting. I've had people come up to me and say, my gifting is. I'm going to, I want to join your church, and my gifting is. Do you know what I think inwardly? I do, I, don't, I do not give a rap about what you think your gifting is. What I want to know about is, who are you serving? Do you know there's nobody in the whole of the Bible stands up and says, now, I'm here, and my gifting is, so make room for my gifting. Remember that incident towards the end of the Acts of the Apostles? I remember as a student hearing Mr. Still in Aberdeen preach a whole sermon on this, how Paul went around picking up sticks to make a fire. Remember how he, the snake came out? Whoop! What was he doing? The mighty Apostle Paul. He was serving. And that is what must have captured the attention of the Apostle Paul. And he was able to say, I mean, imagine that you're actually able to say this to a whole congregation. You know this man, how he has served with me in the gospel. And actually, that little phrase in the gospel, um, you know, I think maybe if you've got a kind of brethren background, maybe that's a kind of brethren expression. Is it a brethren kind of expression? You're in, you know, he's in the gospel. It's a really unusual. What on earth does it mean? In the gospel. The gospel's not something you're in, is it? Oh, yes, it is. And in a way, I think that's, that's the ultimate secret. It's not just that the that the gospel has come to Timothy and the gospel has come into his heart, but, but he, he's in the gospel. You know, David's really into Dundee, isn't he? I mean, the football team. There are worse things you could be into. Not many, but there are worse things you could be into. And it, it, that's Timothy. I mean, he's into the gospel. That's, that's his life. And yes, he has a particular sphere of service, but this is so, so relevant to all of us. What is it? Whatever our sphere of service in the church or our vocation in the world may be, this is what will make the difference, that we are in the gospel. We have the servant spirit. And so Anna Laetitia Waring goes on, so I ask thee for daily strength to none that ask denied and a mind to blend with outward life while helping at thy side. And listen to this, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. One of the problems wanting to fill a big space is that if you try and fill a big space, you leave all the little spaces unfilled. And this was what was so beautiful about Timothy. And it's why, almost certainly, because Timothy was there at the beginning of this church, 10 years ago, Timothy has been back to this church. You know, there's just something about being there at the beginning, isn't there? There's a, there are bonds about being there at the beginning and seeing the work grow. And so it's not surprising, I think, that probably the, the, the Philippians were hoping that Paul would send Timothy to them. I mean, the, the, you know, you can keep Epaphroditus. We've got Epaphroditus every Sunday. Give us a break. 
but he needs him just now. And so it's a very interesting thing that you probably noticed as we read through this, that although Paul's relationship with Timothy is much more intimate, he actually spends more time describing Epaphroditus. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he doesn't say it. He doesn't signal it. He says, by the way, here, do you notice, you know, do you notice? Have you got your ESVs out there in Philippi? Do you notice I'm going to spend more time talking to you about Epaphroditus? Why does he do that? Because sometimes we don't notice the people who are standing straight in front of us. And we don't see just exactly what a privilege it is that we, that we have them. And that's why he spends so much time now, not on Timothy as his son in the faith, but Epaphroditus, his brother in Christ, whom he describes as their messenger. Literally, actually, it's apostle. And I, I, I do wish the translations had translated it apostle. It would have saved a lot of fuss and bother in the church, because then we would clearly have understood that there, were, there are different kinds of apostles in the New Testament. There are the apostles who are appointed by Jesus Christ and there are apostles who are appointed by the churches. Apostles actually just the New Testament word for missionary. That's what it is. And he's the missionary. He's the one they've sent to minister to Paul, bring the gift to help him and to encourage him. And Epaphroditus too is held up before them and us. Uh, you want to see how how a church fellowship should function? Do you want to see what this partnership in the gospel I've been describing to you really, really works like? So, so, what's so great about Epaphroditus? Well, Paul is so appreciative of Epaphroditus, first of all, because of what he was. Look at what he says in verse 25. It's staggering, really. He gives a, he gives a five-fold description I mean, this could be a two-point sermon that really disguises a 24-point sermon. But look at those descriptions. He is my brother. He is my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He is your messenger. And he is your minister. And you know what's really interesting about that is that each of those descriptions arises from the way in which Paul thinks about the church. The church is a family, and so Epaphroditus is his brother. The church is the, the, the building, the temple that, that God is building, and so Epaphroditus is a fellow worker. The church exists on a spiritual battlefield, and so Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. The church has a vast network, as David was saying to the children this morning, the biggest family in the world. And because it's a vast network, there need to be these messengers between the churches. And because the church is the temple of the living God, uh, there need to be those who will minister. And uh, Paul uses a term to describe uh, Epaphroditus here, that means liturgical minister. And he's, he's all of these things. So he loves him because of what he was, and he loves him also because of the heart that he had. He is a minister to Paul's need. 
And look at the touching description he gives him of him. For not only is he a minister to my need, but he is longing, he has been longing for you all. Isn't that something? You know, he's, he's, uh, he's a thousand miles away from them. And, and there he is with the Apostle Paul, and Paul's able to say, you're worrying about your church, aren't you? You know, you're here with me, but half of you is, half of you is in Philippi because you care so much about them. You never go on holiday from them. You're, you're, you're always burdened for them. And then he, then he says this that actually reminds me of my mother and probably reminds you of your mother. He says what really distresses him is not that he has been ill and he's been really, really, really ill. What actually distresses him is he's worried that you might be worried because you heard he was ill. Remember how Paul described himself to the Thessalonians as ministering as a, as a nursing mother with her children. Um, and that's him. I don't want them to be worried about me. <laughs> I don't want to be a burden on them. Now, of course, we can say to we're blue in the face, you're not a burden on us, Epaphroditus. But it's the fact that he feels that that tells you so much as to why Paul appreciated him so much. And he appreciated him also because of what he did. Look at this, verse 30. He says, I thank God that he spared his life. And I'm the more eager to send him Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Isn't that interesting? You know, we, we really love X. You know, when, when X comes to preach in St. Peter's, we really love X. And so what's Paul doing? He's saying, here's the man you should really love. Let me tell you about him. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Which for me raises the question, am I a risk-taking Christian for the sake of others? There are, there are now in our life, endless opportunities to draw back from identifying ourselves with fellow believers out of cowardice and fear and not being willing to take the risk. But it's a risky business if you're really going to follow Christ. And the thing about Epaphroditus, the Philippians needed to know, because they hadn't actually seen it, Paul had seen it, and he's saying to them, you need to know that this man God has given you as one of your elders or one of your ministers or as your apostle to me, you need to know he's the kind of believer who would risk his life for other believers. And Paul is saying, I cannot help loving such a man and saying to you, 
this man is Jesus-like. Because if you, at your leisure, go back through these verses and then read Philippians chapter 2 from the beginning, you'll be struck by the number of echoes there are in the descriptions of these two men of things that were said earlier on in the passage, not least things that were said about the Lord Jesus. And at the end of the day, I think this is what Paul is saying, that it's not the size of the personality, it's not the the nature of your giftedness, it's not the size of the sphere in which you serve Jesus Christ that really matters to Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters to Jesus Christ is that you become like Him. And as you become like Him, others are drawn to Him. And when you think about it, that's actually the only thing that is going to last for all eternity. There will be absolutely nothing in glory that doesn't reflect the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly. And so, because our daily life is taken up with a thousand trivialities, every one of us, some of us may do things that are very significant and very significant to other people. Um, But at the end of the day, the issue is not so much what we do, but whether we are like Jesus in what we do. Because what we do will eventually disintegrate, won't it? You know, you're a doctor, that's really important. Those uh, bodies that you look after, they'll disintegrate. Uh, You're in that popular profession in this congregation, you're a dentist, but you should know those teeth are going to disintegrate, aren't they? You write books, they're all going to disintegrate. I don't expect any of my books to be in heaven. I expect them all to disintegrate. So is there anything that's going to last? Yes, everything that is like Jesus is going to last because this is God's purpose. He predestined us, says Paul in Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, says the apostle John, but when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so Paul is saying the great key to our fellowship, the great key to our fruitfulness in ministry is actually, it's really very simple. It's look to Jesus, reflect Jesus, serve Jesus, love and serve Jesus' people, live for Jesus, and become like Jesus, because that will last forever. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these two men. We're amazed that in this, in this book that we say such great and glorious and true things about, that it's breathed out from heaven by God, that it's superintended by the Holy Spirit, that it is like a two-edged sword 
are these little cameo portraits of, of men, other places women, that, that we've never met and will not meet until glory, but who show us in modest and simple and imitable ways what it means to be like Jesus. And we all come to you tonight, Lord, and, and each of us conscious of our sin and failure. We all want to say to you, Lord, I know I love you and trust you, but I know I'm not very much like you. So I pray, send your Holy Spirit and make me more like Jesus. We ask this for ourselves and for one another, for our whole fellowship. In his great name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.